Amen. I hope you'll take your Bible this morning and turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2. I'm so thankful uh, that you've decided to worship with us this morning. Uh, those that are here in our sanctuary, those that are following us online, and those that are watching television, uh, we're thankful to have everyone together, really looking forward to what I'll be able to share with you today. There's so much to cover. I just want to skip my introduction, and let's begin with the scripture passage. 2 Timothy chapter 2, look with me in verse 1. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, admittedly, honestly, that, that does not sound like a world-changing, life-changing passage of Scripture. I doubt anyone has that passage underlined because it is your favorite. It seems like a very pedestrian passage of Scripture, but I believe that this is one of the most important passages. I believe that in this passage, we can learn how we can change the world. And I can't wait to show you uh, all that God has for us in these two verses. Let me ask you, though, to do something. Before we just jump in, we're going to go quickly today. I have uh, a great deal I want to say. Uh, before we get there, though, will you do this? Will you make the Lord a promise that whatever it is that he asks you to do today, if you hear from the Holy Spirit speaking through his word and he challenges you to do something today, will you decide even now that the answer is yes? Not what a pastor asks you to do, not what a church perhaps asks you to do, but if you feel the pull of the Holy Spirit this morning, will you be obedient to what he asks you to do today? And if you've said yes, you may have just signed up for a wild ride. Uh, this verse, these verses tell us how we can change the world as individual Christians. How can we change the world? And so let me show you four things that it uh, emphasizes. First of all, to change the world, we must recognize what has been entrusted to us. So look back at verse two, and we'll come back to verse one in a moment, but he says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men. Now that word commit in my Bible might say entrust in your Bible. It's a word that really has two meanings, commit and entrust. And so some Bibles highlight the first meaning and some Bibles highlight the second meaning. Both are true. But let's talk about what it means that something has been entrusted to us. This is the same word that Jesus uses in the Gospels when he says, to whom much is given, much is expected. To the one that has received much from the Lord, God expects much from that person, something has been entrusted to you. That, that is as, as if somebody has given you something, something of value that you then are to turn and give to someone else. It has been entrusted to you for a while, but the purpose in giving it to you is so that you would give it to someone else. And so Paul tells Timothy, you've been entrusted with something that you now need to turn and give to someone else. What was it that Timothy was entrusted with? And what are we entrusted with? 
Well, the simple answer here is, is faith. Timothy was entrusted with a faith, a faith in God that had been taught to him by his mother and his grandmother, as you heard Melanie share a moment ago, that had br been brought to him by the Apostle Paul. He was entrusted with this faith, with a knowledge of God, a relationship with God, a knowledge of the truth of Scripture. He knew how to pray. He knew how to find peace. He knew how to fight temptation. He knew how to find joy when life was hard. He knew how to find solace when you were grieving over something. He knew how to find hope in a dark world. That's what he had received. That is what had been entrusted to him. If we, if we are going to change the world, first of all, we have to recognize that something has been entrusted to us. This faith has been given to us, and it is of great value. Great value not just to us, but great value to the people around us. And see, we already know this. We already know that we've learned some things from the Lord through the years, that God has taught us some things. We know this, and I can prove to you that you know it. Have you ever said something like this? If I knew then what I know now, then something would be different. Have you ever said that? If I knew then what I know now, when you say that, what you're really saying is that over the years, the Lord has taught me something. Over the years, through experiences, through the word of God, through the wisdom of others poured into my life, I have learned something. If I knew then what I know now, because now I've learned some things. Or maybe you've said it this way. If I could just do blank all over again. And, I, and the blank could be a lot of things. Maybe it's marriage. If I could you know, do marriage all over again, or maybe my teen years, or if I could do parenting all over again, I would definitely do things differently. When we say that, what we're, what we're really saying is that I've learned something. I have been entrusted with something. I know better now than I knew then. Or maybe, maybe this is the way you've said it. And this would perhaps only be true of those that are my age and older, uh, but... I hear this often, we will say, young people are so dumb. Have you ever said that? And, uh, and you know what, we're right. They are dumb, right? They, they make terrible decisions. And they've always been dumb. And we were young. <laughs> and we were dumb when we were young. But when we say that young people are dumb, what we're really saying is that through the years, I have learned some things, God has taught me some things, and I am better off for it. We have to recognize that we have been entrusted with something. That's, that's the first step of this. If we're going to change the world, we have to recognize what we've been entrusted with. Let me share something perhaps too personal, but, but I just wrote down about 10 things, 12 things that are true of me. Uh, just here's who I am, warts and all, uh, my biography and... Uh, in 10 sentences, uh, let me share this with you and I'll make a point with it. Uh, I'm 52 years old. I've been married for 25 years. I have three kids, two are in college. Uh, my marriage is good, my kids are godly. Uh, I have a mortgage, I have school loans, I have aging parents. I drive a 16 year old car, but I have enough money in the bank to survive an emergency. I have complete assurance of my salvation. I have a life filled with peace and joy most of the time, but I have my days. By the grace of God, I have overcome some sins for good, others not so much. I have learned to be very consistent in my personal devotions. 
I know how to pray. I have hope for the future. I can confidently say with the Apostle Paul that he who began a good work in me will carry it on to completion. I am a thankful person, and I know that the Lord has been better to me than I deserve. That's me, warts and all. Now, why do I share that with you? Because those 10 or 12 things, and I chose those carefully as I, as I thought through this, those 10 or 12 things, they're lessons. I've learned with all of those, many of them the hard way. Many of them have been, have been struggles in my life. But God has taught me something. God has matured me. God has, has grown me. I have learned some lessons by making some errors and some mistakes and going down wrong paths. I have experienced the grace and the mercy of God and the, and, and the, and, and the grace of people around me. I've learned something. Now, you can make the same list. You've learned some things. God has taught you some things. And those are valuable. Valuable to you and valuable to the people around you. If we're going to change the world, the first thing we must do is recognize what has been entrusted to us. And whether you are 16 years old or you are 96 years old, God has taught you some things. Whether you've been walking with the Lord for one year or for 50 years, the Lord has taught you some things. Whether you believe that your life is pretty well put together or you feel like you're just hanging on by a thread, the Lord has taught you some things. And we need to recognize that that experience, that knowledge of the Lord and his word, that maturity in our faith, that confidence, that is valuable. It is valuable to us and it has been entrusted to us because it's valuable to others. And that's the first thing we see here. Paul says, Timothy, something has been entrusted to you so you can give it to somebody else. So that's number one, recognize what has been entrusted to you. Number two, we must pass the baton to the next runner. Pass the baton to the next runner. Now let's look back at the passage. We're going to read this over and over in this message time. But verse one again says, you therefore my son. Why does Timothy call, why does Paul rather call Timothy his son? Well, he was not his son, not in a biological sense, but he was his son in a spiritual sense. Paul was responsible for much of the faith and much of the maturity that Timothy knew. Paul had poured himself into Timothy's life. Paul invested his life in Timothy. And that's interesting because Paul was a busy man and Paul had great demands on his time. And Paul had opportunities to speak on the biggest platforms, but he decided that it was worth his energy to invest his life in young Timothy and other people. And that's what made the difference. And you see it right there in the word son. In fact, Paul calls Timothy his son, his dear son. Over and over in First and Second Timothy, it was an important relationship. So let's continue to read. Look at verse two, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. That reminds us that, that Timothy has heard some stuff from Paul. Paul has sat down with Timothy and he has taught him. He has discipled him. He has mentored him. Paul has given Timothy, Timothy some knowledge. And so that's why it says what you have heard from me. Now continue to read. In the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men, commit it to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul took what had been 
entrusted to him and he gave it to Timothy and then he told Timothy to turn and give it to somebody else. Do you see a pattern there? There is a pattern. The pattern is that God matured Timothy through Paul and God expected other people to be matured through Timothy. The pattern is that the way God matures these people is through other people, through other people mentoring, through other people investing in them. And this isn't a pattern that you just see with Paul and Timothy and others, but it's a pattern you see throughout the Bible. Uh, For instance, uh, the best example would be Jesus. How did Jesus change the world? Well, Jesus often spoke to some very large crowds, but crowds come and go. You know that. Crowds come and go. And Jesus never seemed too concerned when the crowd diminished. In fact, in John chapter 6, Jesus preaches a message to a very large crowd. In fact, a crowd was called in uh, chapter 5, John chapter 5, was called a huge crowd. And, it, and this crowd had followed Jesus. And Jesus was speaking to this large crowd. But then Jesus preached a message that they didn't like. And most of them left. Most of them left. Because they didn't like what Jesus had to say. And after most of them left, listen to this. John 6, 66 says, from that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. So they left and they left for good. So Jesus said to the 12, as if the 12 may have been the only ones who had remained. Jesus said to the 12, you don't want to go away too, do you? And so there was a question about whether or not the 12 would even leave. And so was Jesus panicked that the crowd had gone from thousands to maybe as few as a dozen people? No, Jesus didn't say, oh, what am I going to do now? I won't be able to change the world because I've lost my crowd. No, Jesus didn't say that because crowds never were the key to Jesus' plan to change the world. So how did Jesus change the world? I want you to know that there is no evidence in the book of Acts or the epistles that anybody who heard the Sermon on the Mount or anybody who was at the feeding of the 5,000 or the feeding of the 4,000, none of those people in those big events were on the scene to be world changers once we get to the book of Acts and the epistles. Now, there may have been a few that just hung on and helped out in some way, but there's no evidence of it. Nobody ever says, I came to know Christ at the Sermon on the Mount. None of those people. So how did Jesus change the world? By investing in 12 men. Uh, One of them turned out to be a bad apple. That'll happen. 11 of those, though, turned out to be world changers. Uh, World changers, despite the fact that they had no qualifications, no expertise, no experience, no education, they became world changers. Not because they heard a sermon, but because Jesus invested in those men. And then then he invested in three Three of those 11, he, invest, he really invested in three. In fact, l- listen to this. This is the sampling of what you read in the Gospels. Uh, Mark 5, 37 says, Jesus didn't let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John. Uh, Matthew 14, 33, he took, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and began to be deeply distressed. Luke 8, 51, after he came to the house, he let no one enter except Peter, James, and John. Luke 9, 28, eight days after his 
conversation, he took along Peter, James, and John and went up on the mountain to pray. He invested greatly in just three people. Now, there were the big crowds, like we said. We don't know that there was any lasting fruit from that, but there were big crowds. And then there was the 12 that became world changers. But then there were the three, the three he really invested in. And if you take those three men, Peter, James, and John, and you add to them a fourth man, Paul, that Jesus also poured into in a different way, you take those four men, those four men explain their lives, explain and account for everything that's happened in Christianity the last 2,000 years. Anything that happens in Christianity, you can draw a line from that back to one of those four men. How did Jesus change the world? He changed the world by mentoring, by investing in just a handful of people. Uh, how did the faith get from Jesus to you? Have you ever wondered, what, what if there would have been a problem somewhere a thousand years ago and you'd never heard of Jesus? There wasn't. You know of Jesus. So how did the message get passed from Jesus to, to you? How is it life-changing even today in our lives? Well, if you looked at the history of that, you would find that there have been some crisis moment decisions where somebody just made an instant change. There probably have been some people in your history who have responded uh, to the gospel in a crusade or something. But you know, honestly, most people that respond in a crusade do not go on to follow the Lord. And most people who make this all of a sudden crisis moment decision do not go, go on to follow the Lord. The history from Jesus to you, the chain from Jesus to you, I'm telling you, 99% of it is that somebody invested in somebody. Somebody cared enough to, to invest his life or her life in another person, and that's how the faith has gone from Jesus uh, to you. I bought something this week I want to share with you. I bought it to put on my desk. Do you know what this is? I don't think I'd ever held one before, but this is a baton, not a twirly baton, but uh, the kind of baton that, uh, that they use at a relay race. Now, you know how a relay race works. Uh, one runner runs, and uh, when, when that runner gets to a certain place in the race, he or she then hands the baton to the next runner, and that runner grabs the baton and runs the next leg of the race. Now, it doesn't matter how hard and how fast the first runner runs, if he doesn't hand off the baton, you'll lose the race. Does that make sense? You could be the fastest runner ever, but if you get to the end of your leg and you hold on to the baton, your team will lose. How has God designed our faith such that more people would, would walk with godly lives? It's that you and I would pass the baton to them. That's how Paul impacted Timothy, who then impacted others. That's how Jesus changed 11 lives that changed three lives that changed the whole world. They were faithful to pass the baton. Who is it that you need, that I need to pass the baton to? I, I, I purchased this so I could put it on my desk and every day when I sit down and I study and I pray, I will be reminded that my, one of my primary jobs as a Christian is to pass the baton to a few other people 
so that they can run the race and they can pass the baton to a few other people. So number two, uh, we have to pass the baton to the next runner. Number three, and, and just very quickly, we must embrace our maturing faith. Uh, look back at verse two, middle part of verse two, I believe. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So notice what's happened. Paul has given his faith to Timothy. So that's two generations, right? Paul is generation one, Timothy's generation two. He tells Timothy that he now needs to teach others, that's generation three, who can then turn around and invest in others, that's generation four. We are not mature in our faith because we have received wisdom and knowledge and strength and encouragement. We are mature in our faith when we pass it on. We're mature, not just because we've received it, but because we've turned around and we've given it. The true measure of maturity is not what you get, it is what you give. And so if we're gonna be mature Christians, we've gotta be people who are, who are mentoring, who are discipling other people. And that brings us to number four. We must start now and leave a legacy for the Lord. The math of this is, is pretty amazing. And, and, and I know this is nerdy and, and there may be some mathematical holes in this, but, but listen to this. Uh, I, I'm a preacher and I get an opportunity to preach to hundreds of people every week. Not all right here, but I'm hoping our internet's working and we're preaching to hundreds of people. Uh, so let's say that the fruit of that, let's say the fruit of that is that every week, 10 people make a life-changing decision of some sort or another. 10 people, not all professions of faith, but, but some perhaps and, and other kinds of decisions. 10 people every week make a life-changing decision. So let's just run the numbers. In one week, how many people? 10 people. Now we're assuming that those people don't invest in the lives of others, we're just counting the decisions. So in one week, 10 people. In a year, how many people is that? It's 500 people, right? You with me on the math? 10 people a week, 50 weeks, 52 weeks, about 500 people. In, um, let me look at my, my, my math here. Uh, well, the next one's easy. What about in 10 years? If it's 500 people in one year, how many people is it in 10 years? It is 5,000 people, life-changing decisions. That's wonderful, right? Now, let me, let me give some other numbers to you. What if instead of preaching to hundreds such that 10 people make a life-changing decision, what if I just, what if you just invested your life in three people for a year? Just three. You found three people and you taught them how to read the Bible. You taught them how to love their wives or love their husbands. You taught them how to be faithful in their giving. Just three people, just three people. At the end of the first year, how many would you have? Four, you and three, that's four, right? You're way behind the preacher who has 500 at the end of the first year. You've got four. Now, what about at the end of the second year? Well, those four would go out uh, you and those three go out and you do it with each one with three more people. At the end of the second year, you have 16. Now you're still losing. You know, the preacher's still beating you because at the end of his second year, 
he has, what, a thousand, and you just have 16. What about the end of the third year? You would have 64. At the end of the fifth year, you would have a thousand. At the end of the seventh year, you would have 16,000. At the end of year 10, you would have 1,048,576 people with a real life change. Now you might say, Pastor, there's no way all those people will be faithful to do all of that. Well, maybe you're right, let's cut it in half. So you just have 500,000 people with a real life change. You might say, well, listen, it's, you, you gotta cut it even more than that. So let's say 90% of the people don't follow through. Well, you still have 100,000 people. What if 99% of the people don't follow through? Well, you still have 1,000 people whose lives are changed. I'm telling you, God has given us this way to change the world, and all of us can do this. I, um, I don't know if anybody else ever just wonders you know, what life would be like if, uh, but I, I imagine we all do that. And, and sometimes I wonder uh, what life would be like if I retired at 52. And maybe some of you did retire at 52, or you're planning to retire at 52. More power to you. But what would my life be like if I retired right now? I don't have any desire to retire. I feel like I'm just getting started. But what would life be like if I retired today? Well, I, I think my ministry, if I just retired today, I think my ministry would look like this. I think I would go out and I would find 10 men. 10 men, if I wasn't working and I didn't have other responsibilities, if I could go and find 10 men, and just invest in those 10 men for an entire year. Meet with some of them maybe in groups of two or three, some of them one-on-one, -on -one, but 10 men. I'd meet with them every single week, 10 men, and teach them how to read the Bible and how to pray and, and, and how to trust the Lord and how to, how to treat their wives and their children and how to deal with anger, all the things. And, and 10 men for one year. And then encourage those 10 men to turn around at the end of the year and just do three or four men themselves. And those three or four and those three or four, I think that's what I would shoot to do. That would be my plan. But then I wonder, would my ministry then be more fruitful than my ministry now? I mean, I wonder sometimes. I really do wonder. Would, 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 I be, would I have a greater impact for the kingdom of God if I quit my job, got a part-time job at Lowe's and discipled 10 men a year? What would, what would bring the biggest bang for the kingdom of God? Now, the, the, the truth is, I, it's not an either or. I can preach and still disciple, and hopefully I can encourage other people to disciple and mentor others. But, but, but here's why I share that little mental exercise with you. I think every one of us have the capacity to be world changers if we will invest in just a few people over a year or two years or three years, if we'll invest in just a few people, we, we, preaching to hundreds is not the way to change the world. The way to change the world is investing in just a handful of people, giving them, giving them your faith. I, I, when, I, uh, when I die, certainly will be way before my wife does, um, here's what I hope will happen at my funeral. I hope that there will be a few men. It doesn't have to be some great number, but I hope there will be a few men that'll come up to my wife and will say to her, Donna, it's okay. 
because he took what was entrusted to him and he gave it to me. And I've already started giving it to some others. See, that's how we change the world. More, I believe when it's all said and done, it, my ministry and your ministry will be more about the men I invest in than the crowds I preach to. That was true of Jesus, seemed to be true of Paul, and it'll be true of all of us. Now some will say, Pastor, I, you know, if I were 70 years old and I had a lifetime of wisdom, I would do that. Or somebody might say, if, uh, if only I had not made so many mistakes in life, I would do that. But I want you to know that whatever your age is, and no matter what mistakes you've made in life and marriage, you've learned some things. And there are some people for whom you are uniquely qualified to pass on the faith. You've been entrusted to it, and they need it. So how would you do this? I want to be as practical as I can. Let me just tell you, one, two, three, ABC, here's how, here's how to do this. Uh, number one, commit to starting. Commit to starting. Uh, the elaborate plans that so many people have to disciple others is the enemy of discipleship. Uh, if, if half the people who talked about doing this did it, the world would change in a matter of years. People have these elaborate plans and they're, and they're looking for the perfect literature and they're looking for the perfect opportunity and they want the perfect system in place. Listen, those people never disciple anybody. Uh, don't let perfect be the enemy of what it is you're trying to do. Just do it. I don't even think you need a book. In fact, my personal opinion is that books stand in the way of good mentoring discipleship. Now, they still keep making books, so somebody must disagree with me. But I think if you've got a Bible and you read it every day, then you've got all the tools you need to be able to, to mentor and disciple someone else. So commit to starting. This can't be something that when you find the perfect material and the perfect time and the perfect person, it's got to be something we just begin. Uh, letter B, pray about who you can partner with. Uh, this is going to take some initiative. You're going to have to think of a person or some people and, and reach out to them. And if it didn't take some initiative, it wouldn't be worth doing. It, it's going to take some initiative. But if you'll pray, the Lord will show you some people that you are uniquely qualified to be a mentor for them. And then letter C, start with osmosis. I thought this morning that's probably not the best way to say what I'm trying to say. But this isn't about you trying to find somebody you can fix. This isn't about you finding someone and their life is messed up and you're going to sit them down and you're going to tell them, here are the four things you need to do here and the two things you need to do there and you need to straighten this out and fix that. That's, that's not what this relationship is. Mentoring is 90% osmosis. It means that you sit down with another man and you, and you share with him how things are going in your marriage and how you're praying for your wife and, and, and how you're resolving your problems. And then he shares how things are going in his life and how he's handling it and, and he's learning things from you. You're not, I'm the expert, you're the dummy, you're messing things up, let me tell you what direction to go. It's about sharing, it's about osmosis, it's about reading the Bible together and praying together and, and learning learning from one another. 
So maybe this is what it would look like if you chose to do this this week. Maybe you'd call up a, uh, call up a couple of other men and, and say, you know, one of the things I've learned in my spiritual life is that when I have some accountability for my personal devotions, I am way more faithful. And I wondered if you'd be willing to meet me on Thursday mornings at 7 o'clock or, or, or Tuesday mornings at, uh, at, at 10 o'clock and, and, and let's just talk about what we read the last week and hold each other accountable. And just let it begin that way. That's easy, right? That's easy. And you just find some men and, and, and they'll help you as much as you'll help them. But you're discipling those men. And by osmosis, it, you'll talk about your marriage and you'll talk about your wives and you'll talk about the struggles of faith and, and difficulty. Maybe you're, maybe you're an older woman and uh, you just want to be faithful to what the Bible says in Titus chapter 2. And you want to reach out to a younger woman. Maybe, maybe you do it like this. Maybe you, you pray about who God would have you to, to encourage and you call her up. You call a young mom up and, and you say, listen, the Lord has led me to commit to praying for you every single day for a year. And I just want you to know that that's my commitment. And I, and I, and I just wondered, I know you're busy and I don't want to be a greater burden to you. But can I bake some blueberry muffins and swing by Starbucks and pick up your favorite drink and then just come over to your house one day in the next week or two when the kids are busy and I'd love to just sit down with you for a few minutes and talk and pray for you. Could I do that? I tell you, most of the young moms in our church, most of the young moms in our community would say, that is incredible. Would you really do that? And so you do it once and you see what that turns into and you're probably going to be back in a couple of weeks and you'll probably be back the next week and then the next week and the next week and the next thing you know, God has put this beautiful relationship together and you're mentoring, you're discipling and maybe it doesn't turn out well. So you choose somebody else. The people have to respond and everybody won't respond. But, if, but God has given us this pattern such that we can change the world if we'll recognize what has been entrusted to us, if we'll pass the baton to others, if we'll be a mature Christian, someone who understands that maturity is not about what you get, it's about what you give, and then we will just get started some way on some level. This, th th there's not one particular model and everybody has to follow that model, but all of us need to be investing, investing in the spiritual lives of others. I, I know and I think this more and more as I'm getting older and older. Um, we look at the next generations and we worry for them, right? We worry that what's marriage going to be like for them? What's fidelity going to be like for them? We look at the next generations and we worry about them. Listen, men, women, my age and older, we don't need to be worried about them. We need to be investing in them. If the, if the younger generation in our church, if, they, if their marriages run off the skids, if their lives fall apart, that's our responsibility. We need to be investing in them on purpose all the time. I'll just share a story with you as I close. Um, you, one year ago, and perhaps you saw this on the news, uh, a financial manager in Canada named uh, Gerald Cotton, 
died. 30 years old, he died. But what's interesting about uh, Gerald Cotton's story is that he was a trader in cryptocurrency. Do you know what that is? This electronic money. And he had $190 million under management. It wasn't his money. It was money that belonged to others that they had entrusted to him. And he had $190 million he was managing all in this cryptocurrency uh, for people all over America and Canada. Now, this cryptocurrency, it can be encrypted. The codes can be encrypted uh, such that the only way to get to them is to know the password. And he was very careful, Gerald Cotton, because if somebody knew the password, if you knew the password, you could just go get the money. So he didn't, he didn't tell anybody. He didn't write it down anywhere. Well, his Crohn's disease flared up one day. And in just a matter of a couple of weeks, he got sick and he died. Never telling a soul what the password was. And so $190 million just went to the grave. People have tried for a year to find the password. Unless you believe some conspiracy theory, it is gone. $190 million just gone. What a shame. What we could do with that $190 million. Can you imagine? Now listen, I don't have $190 million. Not sure I have $190. You know, some days it seems like. And, and likely none of you have $190 million. But I have been entrusted with some stuff. I've learned some things through the years. Some things I've learned because I've made some good decisions. Some things I've learned because I've made some really bad decisions. But God has matured me and he's taught me some things. What a shame it would be if I died and just took that to the grave. No, God has entrusted to me, trusted me with something. And he has called me as he's called Timothy to pass that on. Face to face, nose to nose with some other men to pass that on. And as I told you a moment ago, that's what I hope will be my story at my funeral. Not that he preached to some number of people or some other number of people, but that there would be a few men that would say, Donna, what he had, the trust that had been given, I just want you to know he has given it to me and I'm giving it to somebody else. I'll know then that my life, like the life of the Apostle Paul and of Timothy and of Jesus, will counts in the right way. Just with your head bowed and eyes closed. Father in heaven, as I've preached through this message, I've thought about some of those people who have invested in my life. I'm so thankful for those. And I'm sure others had the same thought that I am who I am. I am where I am. My life is what it is, in large part because some people have invested in me. Father, I pray that I will be faithful to pass the baton to those that come behind me. Help me recognize that I have the power to change lives and change the world for generations if I'll just be faithful to this small assignment. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.